If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll dive in there in just a second. I'd noticed that time on the clock is 9.35. And I say that out loud because I read an article by a pastor who said that no one listens to the first two minutes of the sermon. So I'm just going to be quiet now until 9.37. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For those of you guys that were here last week, we read this verse. Chapter 2, verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So before we jump into chapter 3, how did it go last week? How did it go? After paying so close attention to the word last week, how did it go for you? Well, I want us to uh, stay in the posture of paying attention as we jump into Hebrews chapter 3. These are the first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son of as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So a little bit of context here before we talk about a couple of these truths. From the beginning of the letter uh, to the Hebrews, the author is developing this argument that Jesus is supremely great. He's greater than angels. Talked a little bit about that last week. He's the author of this great salvation, and he's great enough to become a man to accomplish all of this. And in chapter 3, the writer turns his attention to Jesus being greater than Moses. Moses is regarded by the Jews as one of the greatest of men, or by some Jews, as the greatest of men. And so it's super important for the writer of this letter to help Jewish readers understand that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. Because the entire Jewish religion came through Moses, Christianity has come through Christ. A couple of major truths there. You probably caught a few of those. I'll just highlight a couple. As Christians, we're holy. You and I are holy. Just as we are right where we are, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has accomplished we are holy. We are saints, not sinners. Our identity is not sinners. We are saints. And we share in this heavenly calling. We share in this heavenly calling, this divine invitation to embrace the salvation of God in the here and now, and then to steward this gift 
of salvation in the neighborhood and in the nations. And not only are we partakers of his divine essence and holy people, but we're now partners with him in making all things new. We get to partner with him in the restoration and the renewal of a lost and broken world. And I think that's some of what this writer is talking about. And I think this writer realizes, wow, that sounds like a lot. And so he pauses for a second. He says, well, that's kind of overwhelming. So let's just stop for a second. And he gives us this instruction. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Okay, after all of those verses, you know, fix your thoughts on Jesus. I want us to stay here for just a second. How do you fix your thoughts on Jesus? Paul is not the writer of this letter, but his letters are filled with this same instruction. Here's just one quick example from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The starting point for Paul is who we are, whose we are. We fix our thoughts on Jesus who he is, what he's accomplished. Our starting point is not what's going on in the world. Our starting point is not what's going on in your home or not what's going on in the neighborhood, or not what's going on on Facebook. Our starting point is our salvation. Our starting point is our savior. All of us have lots of things going on in our minds. All of us are bombarded all the time. Information, thoughts, crazy things just popping in and out of our minds all the time. There's never been a time in our world where opinions are so varied. There's never been a time where challenges are so big. And in the midst of all of that, the writer of the Hebrews says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So let me ask one more time. How do you... Fix your thoughts on Jesus. I'll give you a second to think about it. How do you fix your thoughts on Jesus? I asked uh, John William, who led us in our call to worship, I asked him if he would tell us how he, how he fixes his thoughts on Jesus. So take a look at this video. I'm Sean Chambly, and I was tasked with answering how you fix your thoughts on Jesus. Now, being a teenage boy, this can be hard, but I've been battling with it and I have came up with an answer. And I would say just being consistent, whether that's doing a devotion every night, whether that's praying, whether that's reading your Bible, whether it's doing devotion time with your family, just anything to keep you active in the Word and just active in Him. If you can stay in the Word and know His truth, that can really help you nowadays and just blocking out all the lies that this world can throw you. So yeah, I would just say, Staying consistent in his word. He said, be consistent in his word. How does John William fix his thoughts on Jesus? Be consistent. I love that he said, that's hard for a teenage boy. Did you hear that? It's like, yeah, it is. It's hard for us, older guys too. Be consistent and be in his word. How do you, maybe you could tell the person sitting next to you. How do you fix your thoughts on Jesus? Go ahead, tell the person sitting next to you real quick.
worship, maybe someone said worship. I'm not sure what y'all said. Worship is a way in which helps me fix my thoughts on Jesus. Uh, being in community, being around other people helps me. Uh, obviously, prayer. One of the ways that helps me fix my thoughts on Jesus is laughter. Someone asked me the other day, what does heaven sound like? And my daughter was in the car with me and I said, it sounds like, it's, heaven sounds like her laughter. <laughs> and AGB goes, dad, you totally took the easy way out on that question. <laughs> Creation, we were just talking about being outside. Helps me fix my thoughts on Jesus. Solitude. Johnny's Pizza on Friday nights. For sure. The writer is going to give us one practical way of how we can fix our thoughts on Jesus. If you're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, slide down to verse 12 and 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. One way we can fix our eyes we can fix our thoughts on Jesus is to encourage others and to receive encouragement from others. Over the last while, I've become convinced that the greatest and most singular need for people who want to follow Jesus, who want to live on earth as it is in heaven, to live in the presence and power of holy love on earth as it is in heaven is courage. Courage. And the truth here is that holy courage can actually be instilled by another. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Not only does encouragement encourage people, it protects us from growing hardened. It protects us from sin's deceitfulness. Let me give you a crazy working definition of encouragement. This is from J.D. Walt. He says, to encourage in the biblical sense of the term is to stand in the stead and agency of Jesus, participating in the work of the Holy Spirit, to minister grace to human beings at the level of their inner person, Communicating, conveying, and imparting life, love, courage, comfort, consolation, joy, peace, hope, faith, and other dispensations and manifestations of the kingdom of heaven as the moment invites or requires. Now we're going to hold on to that and come back to it in just a second. But I want us to back up a little bit. Slide up to verses 7 through verse 11. Last week I mentioned that there are five warning passages in this letter to the Hebrews. This section begins the second warning passage, goes uh, from this, sec this section all the way through chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, which we'll talk about next week. But I want to make sure you understand the context of these verses. So the writer is going to quote from Psalm 95. And what he's really doing is just reminding them of their past. He's reminding them of their history. He's saying, hey, hey, remember what happened to your ancestors? Remember what happened to your family? Remember what happened to your Israelites? 
And the verses are pretty much saying, don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. So verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, and that's why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my anger on oath, they shall never enter my rest. Notice the word today at the beginning of this um, text. Today stresses the urgency and immediacy of action. The word today actually shows up eight times in the letter to the Hebrews. I want you to hear Psalm 95. This is a quote from Psalm 95, but I want you to hear just a couple of verses from Psalm 95. This is verse 6 and 7. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are His people, the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you'd only hear his voice, that's what the writer is referencing here. Israel started out really strong in their faith. They started out really strong following God, like things are going pretty great. And then it all went south. And the same thing is happening to the people who this writer is writing this letter to. They started out really strong. And then after a while, they just kind of sort of, you know, they just went through the motions. And he's saying, wherever you are on this journey, right now, today, wherever you are today, pay attention, wherever you are today, right here, right now, listen to what I'm saying, wherever you are, he says. See to it, brothers and sisters, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I want to show you that definition one more time from J.D. Walt. I love every bit of this definition. I love that line there um, where it, in the middle where it talks about ministering grace. And then that bottom part talks about dispensations and manifestations of the kingdom of heaven as the moment invites or requires. Uh, you guys know this, I'm pretty sure. In scripture, what is the church called? The church is called the, yeah, yeah, yep, the church is called the body of Christ. You're right. The church is called the body of Christ. In scripture, we the church, and we're the church, right? We're the church. We are the body of Christ. Yes? We're the body of Christ. So when this starts talking about manifestations, don't, 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 don't get worried. But I want you to hear me. We are the body of Christ. That's what scripture says. Yes, we are the body of Christ. I'm not sure if you grasp the reality of what we've been entrusted with, but in this neighborhood, we are the body of Christ. And in the same way that Christ ministered grace, communicating, conveying, and imparting life, love, courage, so do we. Now, I don't, know, I don't know if you get this, but I'll just say it one more time. We are the body of Christ. That means we are the manifest presence of Christ in this neighborhood right now. Yes, 
Do you, are you guys with me? This is what scripture says. We are the body, we are the manifest presence of Christ in this neighborhood. We get the privilege of speaking life just as Christ spoke life to the people around him. We have the opportunity to speak life into others. I've been carrying this little card around with me uh, all week long. I wrote on the front of the card this Bible verse, uh, encourage one another daily and as long as it's today. And then on the back I wrote this crazy long uh, definition and I've just kind of been holding it on, uh, holding it with me and, and trying to think about it. And I was like, okay, God, I'm in. I'm in. I'm gonna, I want to do what your word says, encourage one another daily. And so I got out my phone and I pulled up my contacts. And I said, okay, God, who needs encouragement? You know, and I didn't audibly hear God say, who doesn't? Anyone in here not need encouragement? Who doesn't need encouragement? Quick, quick, quick story to maybe give you a starting point to think about how we could put this truth into practice to encourage one another daily. I mentioned last week that Adele and I were at this camp and we were speaking at this camp and we gave this talk and what she said was just totally amazing. And afterwards, all these people came up to her and they were all telling her how uh, encouraged they were by her talk. But later that night, I don't know if I said this or not, but later that night, we gave a second talk. And at the beginning of that second talk, she referenced just, you know, thank you for the encouragement that you guys gave me today all through the day. And then she sort of kind of went down this side road. Uh, I don't know where she got that from, but she sort of went down this side road and uh, she said, hey, I really appreciate uh, the encouragement from all of you and it really means a lot to me. But then she started to tear up and she pointed at me and she said, but when my dad encourages me and when my mom encourages me, and then she sort of got emotional and she said, and when my husband encourages me. And I thought, here's a 28 year old kid who still desires encouragement from her dad. Yes? I don't know what it's like for you. I get encouraged uh, around here uh, some, and I'm so grateful for the encouragement that I get from you guys. But when my wife encourages me, I can slay giants. I don't know where this truth needs to be put into practice today in your life. But I just want to invite you to consider what would it look like for you to encourage one another daily. I bet it, the best place for it to start would be with the person sitting next to you. You being the manifest presence of Christ. Encouraging and blessing the person sitting next to you. Well, the next couple of verses um, say this. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Again, this is referencing Psalm 95. Just want to say this really quick. I think you know this, but it's important just for me to underscore that a hardened heart is not something that just happens. You don't just wake up with a hardened heart. A hardened heart happens over time. A hardened heart is the product of a habitual state of mind. A hardened heart happens over time when our thoughts are on self-protection and self-survival and self-righteousness over time that produces a hardened heart. And he's saying, hey, watch out, watch out. And then verses 16 down through verse 19, just giving more warning. Who, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all of those that Moses led out of Egypt? He's talking about church people, right? The church, Israel. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Wow, these verses are tough, man. This is hard stuff right here. These guys died as believers, I think, but they didn't live in the blessing that could have been theirs because they refused to live in the will and the way of God. They believed that their will and their way was better. I got a better way than this way, you know. This is soul-crushing kind of stuff for me because I've seen this happen time and time again. Someone who starts off really, really strong, really, really working towards thinking through how do I live and love like Jesus? How do I fix my thoughts on Jesus? And then over time, it's kind of, it's soul-crushing kind of stuff. People who believe, who want to follow Jesus, but only want to follow him halfway, you know? They want to follow Jesus when it's convenient or when it's popular. or They miss out on the beauty and wonder and joy of following Jesus full time. And I'm not sure how it happens, but the text here references the wilderness. You know that the people of Israel were in the wilderness for a really long time. In Scripture, when it talks about the wilderness... It's often talking about the wilderness in sort of a geography of trauma and death. The wilderness is where our faith goes to flourish, or the wilderness is where our faith goes to die. Just give you a couple of biblical examples about the wilderness. Back in Genesis 16, we talk about this story every once in a while. It tells the story of Hagar, who had been mistreated by Sarah. And she winds up pregnant, single, in the wilderness. And uh, her name, Hagar, it means to flee. Hagar is fleeing into the wilderness. And ultimately, she wants to die. She's unmarried. She's pregnant. She's sitting by the side of the road. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up and meets her in the midst of the wilderness. One other quick example from the Old Testament, uh, 1 Kings 19 Elijah, you know that guy, you know that guy's story? Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. 
I'm no better than my ancestors. I don't know if you've ever been in the wilderness. Don't know what the wilderness sounds like. But in these two examples, it sounds like trauma and death. Elijah says, I can't do it anymore. There's one other quick story I wanted to tell you. It's about this time when King David is being, uh, he's, he's being essentially persecuted by Saul. King David is on the run, and Saul is trying to catch up with him to kill him. Saul wants to take David's life. He's, he knows the whole story that David's going to be the king, and Saul's like, no way, I'm the king. And Saul's chasing him down. He's got this whole army going on, and David winds up in the wilderness. I just want you to hear his posture in the wilderness. This is Psalm 63. David writes these words from the wilderness. You, God, you, God, are my God, and earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. But I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. And because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. And I'll be fully satisfied as with the richest of food, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. The wilderness is a place where our faith goes to flourish or where our faith goes to die. If there's ever a place where someone needs encouragement, it's when they're in the wilderness. It's the place maybe where you have asked, how much longer? Can't do this again. I'm not up for this. I'm totally exhausted. It's the place where we want to give up. We want to throw our hands up in the air. It's the place where we start to where we start to sort of negotiate and we don't show up as our true selves anymore. We show up in that false version where we just say, yeah, everything's fine and where we just keep the peace, where we don't really engage, where we're not really honest and there's for sure no vulnerability. Place where you think by living this way, everybody's just going to be happier. And then all of a sudden, some friend sends you this crazy text. And they go, hey, it's worth it. Hey, you're worth it. All of a sudden, out of the blue, some crazy friend says, hey, kingdom, kingdom is worth it. Some crazy friend just says, hey, just today, just today, can you trust them? Just today, just in this moment, just today, just give us today our daily bread. Some friend, some crazy friend sends you a text out of the blue. And all of a sudden, what happens? Okay. Okay, God. Encouragement, at its best, is exquisitely mutual. It's when someone knows that you're in the wilderness and they send you a text. It's when someone invites you, when someone knows that you're going to that meeting or you're going to that place or you're going back to the doctor and they go, hey, okay, okay, I got you. I got you. I'm with you. 
It's not just giving encouragement, but for some of us, the harder challenge is receiving it. When someone sends you that crazy text and you go, I wish I could believe everything that they wrote about me in this moment. Yeah. Sometimes the harder thing is to receive the encouragement. But if we believe what the Bible says, this encouragement is not just coming from this person. This encouragement is coming from heaven through this person to you. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. A couple questions. So today, where do you need courage? Where do you need courage to fix your thoughts on Jesus? I'll just close here with a couple of invitations. The first is, if you need someone to join you today in prayer... In just a moment or two, there'll be some folks in the back corners over there by the stairs. And they'll be there to pray with you and pray for you. Second invitation would be that. Give you the opportunity to respond by taking communion. Communion's always available here on Sundays. If that would help you fix your thoughts on Jesus, I want to invite you to participate in communion and lastly i just wrote this card and made a bunch of copies and uh, just put a bunch of these cards down here if it would help you to grab one of these cards and you just be reminded you keep it in your pocket or my hope is that we could live out the truth of fixing our thoughts on jesus through mutual encouragement of one another so However God is leading you to respond, I want to invite you to courageously respond. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for filling us with your life, for filling us with your love, Thank you for meeting us in places like the wilderness and on mountaintops and in every space in between. And thank you for inviting us to be the body of Christ, to be your hands and your feet, to be your eyes, to be your ears, to be your mouth, to be your death and to be your resurrection. In this neighborhood and in the nations, we thank you. Spirit, I pray that you would just speak to us now. Maybe to the places where we lack courage. The places that cause us fear or anxiety or worry. Or the places where we've just thrown up our hands and given up. I pray that you would meet us with your courage here today. Jesus, thank you. For loving us. Thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for knowing us and allowing us to know you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name.
Amen.